That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney. I'm very happy to be here. And with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? That's me, Michael Walker. How are you doing? Happy New Year, Walker. I realize this is a bit late, but unlike other shows, other broadcasts, we're going to let 2022 relax a little bit. Come in, come in. Take off your shoes. Put your feet up. Do you have a drink? Do you want to drink 2022? We're just going to ease into it. You know, we don't want to startle him away, right? You know, he comes out. He might see a shadow. He might run away. You know, he's going to just, just come on in. I can't like help but notice said, the 2022 doesn't have a biscuit. Good. Let's offer 2022 a biscuit. Have a little snack. Yep. Let 2022 tell us about its day. Some people Mark, actually have suggested that Mark, we delay. Yes? Tw- 2022 just, just bit my arm off. Oh. And things were going so well. Yeah. <laughs> Some people suggested actually that we delay yet further so as to be able to give a best of 2021 that was yet more complete. But quite frankly, you're never going to play everything that's released in a year. We did, of course, take advantage of the extra few weeks. But I mean, honestly, if we waited to play every single last thing that we thought was of note, we would only release this around December of this year, if that. And then time just gets all Jeremy Baramy, and who wants that? Yeah, that's that's what I was saying. I saw the the comments as well. It's like there's just no way you can play everything, and and some things that are just not available yet. There's still some games that are still trickling in that exactly. are still going to be slotted for 2021. And it's odd. I, it seemed as though there was an issue when people put their games in Board Game Geek. As soon as they put in a release year, it was locked in. This is not the case anymore, but there are quite a few games that all have all been bumped up to 2022 that we were first allotted to 2021. So that's an interesting change for sure. Such is the way of release dates. Anyway, no list is comprehensive, but we are going to give you our top 10 in our year in review. We also have our special categories. We're going to give us your game of the year. But before all of that, Walker... We're going to talk about the games we've played last week, where last week, very much like the notion of a year or release schedule, is a flexible quantity of time. In this instance, it is the quantum between our previous broadcast and today. So, with that in mind, let us begin. Walker, what did you play last week? I played many dozens things of last week, but I only, you know, 
I siphoned it down to the ones that I actually want to talk about. Mark, we got a review copy of Fossils. This is a great gateway game, or if you have a, a child that really loves dinosaurs, this will be the gate for him. You're sliding around giant mounds of earth, you're uncovering pits, and you're using tweezers to actually pull up bones of dinosaurs, and you lay them on your sheets, and you build your dinosaur, and once you've got all your dinosaur parts, then you score that dinosaur. And you can even shove the dirt so it knocks other meeples off the little plastic tray like it's this giant raised tray that has 25 pits in it and then all these like really thick plastic uh tiles go on top and they all slide around and they uncover the pits and you can like i said slide a whole bunch over and have the the other players meeples fall off and they have to spend time to get back up all in all it was an enjoyable experience and i think it would be a great game for any dinosaur lover let me get this straight facilis is basically operation meets dinosaurs Yes. Oh my goodness. Unfortunately, no buzzer when you hit the sides, but uh, yes, there are little tiny white plastic bones and you got to pick them out. And there's, unfortunately, there's this mechanic where you have to acquire all this plaster and stuff to, so I I don't think you're actually taking the bones out. Maybe you're making a plaster mold of the bones. I'm not sure why you're acquiring all this plaster, but there are actions to acquire plaster and then, and then the action to take with the bone, you have to spend the correct amount of plaster to take the bone that you want. So that's a little, you know, tedium, but other than that, it was fun. So there, there are some perfunctory resource generation elements that are standing in between you and your awesome tweezers. Exactly. I see. And, and I think, I think parents would have a great time too, because there's this whole sort of set collection thing happening in the background because every dinosaur, either is a biped or quadruped or from different eras, or they all have these signifiers and you get all these bonus victory points at the end, depending on how your sets eke out. Is the Ankylosaurus represented? The Ankylosaurus is, in fact, represented. All right, good. Then I'm actually looking forward to giving it a try. No Ankylosaurus, no sale. That's my general policy with respect to dinosaur things. <laughs> I have very firm opinions on the matter. I got to play In Too Deep. In Too Deep is from Burnt Island Games. Burnt Island Games is the Canadian publisher that first republished Endeavor and then was responsible for In the Hall of the Mountain King and the upcoming Fall of the Mountain King. Now, Endeavor, they didn't publish in the first instance. They were just merely responsible for giving it the lavish new edition. And In the Hall of the Mountain King, I thought was fine. And so when In Too Deep was put up on Kickstarter, I was immediately reminded of how incredibly attractive and functional their previous editions have been. Endeavor's components and In the Hall of the Mountain King's components are very, very visually appealing and tactilely appealing and well-organized. And I have to say that In Too Deep was a very large disappointment, uh, both in terms of the fact that the incredible visual appeal of the game is not properly utilized. It's one of those games where all the artwork is very compelling and all the graphical flourishes are very visually appealing. But if you look at an individual card or an individual asset where those art pieces are used, it's very difficult to make it out. And it's just overwhelming text and very, very small elements of the graphic uh, gra- graphic use. So when you see the entire game set up, it doesn't have the same visual appeal that the individual art assets have. So that was my first area of disappointment. My other area of disappointment was actually, you know, playing the game. So like many Euro games, it's primarily about recipe satisfaction. Make sure that the following assets are in the right place at the right time, and you get to trigger this mission and score points. A la Yedo, a la any of the economic Euros where you're satisfying orders. But in this case... 
somewhat like Yato, it relies on shared assets. You know, the agents that have to be in a particular place, the objects that have to be at a particular location, they're not controlled by any given individual player directly. They're controlled through a very interesting thematic element whereby you are pseudo-law enforcement agents who are hacking into their minds and forcing them to do various things, but with the possibility of becoming corrupted in the process, hence the in too deep. And the problem, therefore, is that there's this kind of uh, spatial puzzle that can completely be undercut by one of two elements that I thought completely sapped any of the, the, the real enjoyment of the game. Number one is the fact that, well, you can just pull a recipe that requires very little tinkering on your part because the board state happens to be in that position. Or you can pull a recipe that involves Herculean efforts to get everything in the right position. And that disjunction is very, very unfortunate and felt that it drove a lot of the final scores of our game of In Too Deep. The people who won and were doing well were mostly just pulling missions that said, oh, have the board be the way that it is. And we're very happy to do so. And some people just could not catch a break. The other big problem is that if my recipe clashes with your recipe, meanwhile, player C's recipe doesn't clash with either of ours, they're unimpeded. Meanwhile, you and I will be butting heads, spending resources in an effort to force the game state into a position that we want it to be. And so that's another area of arbitrariness and another area of it just being very unsatisfying because I don't know what your goal is. You don't know what my goal is. I'm not engaged in clever blocking play by impeding you. This is just an accident of how the game state happens to be. And so the game felt very, very procedural. It didn't live up to its thematic or artistic promise by virtue of these underlying gameplay elements. And I was very disappointed by In Too Deep. It was, it was okay. It was fu uh, reasonably functional. The game didn't fall apart entirely by virtue of these interactions, but I never got to feel clever. I never got to exploit the board position to get things in, a, in the right position and use this power in a clever way and exploit my the agents that I've already had. It ultimately didn't satisfy. One element that was more satisfying was managing this corruption. It's not quite like Cleopatra and the Society of Architects, where whoever has the most corruption just loses. There's this actually relatively involved element of, well, if you're the most corrupt, you're going to lose a whack of points. But in the process of getting corrupt, you might have acquired a variety of bennies that are not just flat points. Some of them are weird set collection points. Anyway, it's a relatively involved system, and I quite enjoyed it. The way that corruption is managed overall was very satisfying. I wish it had been married to a different game, or I wish it had been married to a goal system that was slightly more public, so you wouldn't have the problem of people's shared goals being unfairly difficult or unfairly easy, and you also wouldn't have that unfortunate element of people getting each other's way accidentally. Uh, and as a result, I didn't feel like there was much room for clever play other than in the manipulation of that corruption system. Add on top of that a weird scoring system that encouraged a bizarre memory element, which really rubbed me the wrong way. I'm not opposed to all memory elements, but it was a weird kind of indirect element of, well, what is it that they're drafting? Okay, they're drafting that kind of symbol. I guess I should kind of interpret that that means that they want it. That could be more to your question of taste, though. Some people love that kind of indirect knowledge signaling, but it, I don't think it was really a huge element of the game but it didn't satisfy me. So long story short, for In Too Deep, I felt that it showed a lot of promise both thematically and mechanically, but ultimately I did not find it a very satisfying play experience, and that made me a sad boy. That is In Too Deep by Josh Capel and Daryl Chow and Burnt Island Games. So Mark, we all know that aliens have visited the planet, and things that you don't know about that is that they really enjoy French toast. I thought they liked cows. So much to the point that when ali other aliens come back onto the ship and they want to tell their friends what they've seen down I'm on the planet. I'm so Every, confused. Everything, 
everything must be related to French toast. Played a game called French Toast, Mark. <laughs> That's the first thing you've said that makes sense. And so you're playing alien and everything needs to be related to French toast. So you draw a word as the alien and let's say it's wrench. And so your first base is French toast. And someone will say a word like, is it travel? And then you have to decide whether is travel closer to French toast or closer (laughs) to wrench. So then if it's closer to French toast, you say French toast. And if it's closer to travel... Then you say travel, and they say, "Okay, well, we're getting on the close on the on the path to wrench travel. Probably not really close, but you can see where this is going." So the next they'll say car, and you'll say, "Oh, car," because you know car and and wrenches are both made of steel, and you know you're going somewhere. So off you are, and then you can always come back if if they've gone too far off the track. You can go back and say start saying travel again, or start saying French toast right back to the beginning if you wish. You do this for about 30 seconds, and then you put out some sort of aids. There's like, you know, metal or wood or nature, or there's all these like base cards that you can put out that sort of steer them a little bit more towards the word that you have. I think it is a fantastic party game. Many laughs, just hilarious. French toast would play again. An unusual coincidence, French toast is my safe word. Played another game of Magnate the First City. This is the game by James Naylor at Naylor Games. I really got to applaud the fact that James Naylor got a job at Naylor Games. I'm sure that was just a lucky coincidence. He was in the right place at the right time. Uh, I'm sure no nepotism was involved whatsoever. This is a lavishly overproduced game with lovely little plastic buildings that is utterly unlike Monopoly in most ways. It is a game of property speculation and avoiding the crash. And now I can say, after with a little bit more experience with Magnate the First City, I can say that it is solid and functional. The problem is that the a game of Magnate will probably, in my experience, this is a bit of a false dichotomy, boil down to one of two end games. Because the game ends when the property market crashes, and then property values take a tumble, everyone sells what they have left, and then the game ends. But if you've sold your property earlier on, you will have earned much, much more money. Balance against that is the prospect of holding onto property and thereby earning rent. So there's speculation, there's management, there's a little bit of this, that, and the other. And the, the, the mechanisms are very pleasing, and I really like how you buy property and magnate and how you manage it. And there's a weird little dice game that's a little fiddly, but... I was going to say, I heard that there's dice rolling and there could be trouble. The dice rolling, honestly, is not a huge deal. There's not vast swings of fate. And if you play with the advanced tenants variant whereby the different tenants that you can attract are of different types, I find that actually mitigates the luck considerably. You either roll really well and you get awesome tenants if they're available, and if you roll poorly, you can get something that's reasonably poor for rent purposes, but will probably function just as well for speculation purposes. And that, that that's exactly the kind of dice manipulation that I like. You can invest the resources to try to juke your roll to get the better result and thereby get more rent, but if you fail completely, you're not left with nothing, and what that does is it guides you towards a different use to that token, albeit not shackling you to that decision. So the dice rolling and magnate I find perfectly fine in terms of the luck mitigation available to you, and beyond which it's a li- just a little bit more complicated to, to tally up how many dice you have and what modifiers you get. That part is is, is okay, but it's, it's probably one of the most obtuse elements of Magnate the First City. The issue that I have is that so far I've seen the game boil down to one of two possible endgames. Either the crash is precipitous, it comes out of nowhere, People did not see it coming, and it wasn't easily broadcast. In which case, the people who just sold the more property recently, either because they speculated the crash might come, or because they needed that influx of cash flow, or some other reason, then they do quite well. Or... 
the game proceeds at a steady enough pace and the ending of the game is very, very clear. It's clear when the crash is going to happen. Then everyone just sells the other property at the, 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 the before last turn. And then the game becomes a little bit staid, a little bit predictable from that perspective. And ultimately, therefore, I think that Magnate the First City, although an interesting conceit and is very, very pleasant to play, the way the end game works turns it into a more one-dimensional, one-trick pony than it should be. So this, again, is an instance of a game having lots of interesting things to do and lots of visual appeal and a very approachable theme well executed but ultimately undone by its end game condition being far too dispositive like i have no idea how it works haven't played it no idea but i mean is the end game triggered by by like the money running out i'm just wondering if you can sell your crappier properties thereby decreasing the bank and having it crash earlier than people expect no the way the crash is precipitated is by pulling cards off of this deck and the card will say the crash will now happen more soon and or when the crash happens properties will be depreciated by this amount and the number of cards that get pulled at the end of the round is a shockingly organic function of what the economy and magnate has been doing are people selling a lot of property is the property market overheated have people been engaged in not enough advertising? Are there not enough tenants around? Is there really low vacancy rate in the market, etc., etc.? And it's not because huge numbers of cards to be pulled or small numbers of cards to be pulled. The issue is that the cards range in value from zero to three, and that can have a massive impact on when the crash happens. You can have a relatively calm property market and only pull two cards. And if those two cards are minus threes, well, then that can turn a relatively stable game on its ear, either ending it precipitously or causing the crash to be all but certain a turn or two from now. And again, I'm, I'm drawing a bit of a false dichotomy here. I, I would be happier if the the ending of the game were a little... The, the timing worked a little bit more like the games you're talking about, where it's a question of busting the bank, i.e. 18xx games, food chain magnate, games of that ilk, where the ending of the game is uncertain, and it will absolutely have an impact on the game, and you can exert some advantage by virtue of seeing it coming, but it is not A, quite so determinative, and B, it's not quite so blunt. And so I think that some version of that, maybe if you'd had the, the ending based on some bank, maybe a bank with a hidden reserve or even a random reserve, some hybrid model that Food Chain Magnet has, I think that would probably do more credit to the other subsystems of Magnate the First City. But as it is, the end game, although a moment of tension and a moment of great, great reveal, you know, you pull that card and everyone groans and the game's over and you count out your money, in terms of its influence on both the pacing of the game leading up to it and the victor, I think that it, it undercuts rather than enhances the other choices you've made along the way. Also, just as I've said before, I would be much, much happier with Magnate if it had half the components and half the price. It's a little bit ridiculous in terms of the plastics that's being thrown around. Think Big City Anniversary Edition. It's just, it's very pretty, but honestly, in uh, a current market, in a sustainability perspective, both from an environmental perspective and from a wallet perspective, eh, can't justify it. And that is Magnate the First City by James Naylor at Naylor Games. I got to play Corrosion from Capstone Games. I feel they're really killing it this year. Lots of good games coming out from them. So this is a, a, a literal engine builder. You're, you're building uh, turning machines, you're building one-time machines, and you're building chrome machines. has a great first sort of active player marker because who, if you're the active player, it's like this wrench. And it actually has the you know, actions listed on the wrench as you pass it around. So a little quick little reminder, nice way to only have to print one player reference. 
And on your turn, what you're doing is either you're playing a card or you're turning your machine. Now, as you turn the machine into the active area of the machine, it's always like the, you know, the, wherever the arrow is on the little dial, that whole system is going to corrode at the end of your turn. So every time you turn the machine, all of your turning machines in the four different sectors activate. You're allowed to activate any of your Chrome machines because they're made out of Chrome. So you just, you activate them when you wish. And then there are one time machines that are in that one active area. So you activate those. And then when your turn's done, you just wipe out that whole quarter of your board. It is now gone. But you do get back your workers, any workers that you played. That's the playing the card part, are workers, and they those are what you're going to do to seed the other areas of the board. So it's this nice decision space of, do I want to start turning my machine now, or do I want to make these other sections better, like give, you know, action efficiency? You know, do I want to get more turning actions out, so every time I start turning the machine, I'll get more stuff? Do I want to load up these one-time machines. Those are interesting as well because you can put them out whenever you want and they're not quite built yet. So you can sort of, you have time before the dial gets to them to get them built. All of this stuff going on led to a very pleasing game. It just seemed to go on a little bit longer than it should have, but it was still very interesting because uh, all the workers have numbers and that's sort of the length of their shift. And they're going to go in that sector that their number is. So if they're a four, you have to wait for an entire rotation of your machine before you get them back again. And those are the better ones and you're playing them out. Great little game. They have a cool water. One of the currencies is water. So you have this boiler and it has a, a upper and a lower section. So either it's steam or it's water and you, you move them back and forth between those things. I thought it was an interesting little thing. I don't know why it, it pleased me so, but it did. Corrosion would play again anytime. I got to play a review copy of G.I. Joe Deck Building Game. This was sent to us by Renegade Game Studios, designed by T.C. Petty III. And as advertised on a uh, certain third-rate award-winning board game podcast by a first-rate award-winning podcast host, Michael Walker, it is shockingly better than it has any right to be. It's pretty good. Uh, At the end of the day, the G.I. Joe Deck Building Game is mostly about symbol matching. Although in this case, it's about skill matching. You know, your various operatives have skills in a variety of different areas and they can be thrown at other things, but in doing so, their efficiency will be much, much, much lower. And you're looking at the upcoming mission. The upcoming mission needs people who are good at tracking and who are good at martial arts. And so you're looking at your hand and saying, do I have anybody that is good at those things? Oh, I don't. Okay. Is anybody in the market good at those things? Oh, okay. And that element of matching, I thought was uh, a little bit more tedious than it needed to be. I mean, I think symbology might've helped a great deal if there was a symbol that corresponded to each skill. But at the end of the day, it's the kind of thing we've been doing in a lot of co-op games or even competitive games of this ilk. You know, assemble operatives or resources that can be thrown at things that require specific flavors of requirements or resources. And it was pretty solidly done. You have to load your Joes up into a vehicle. You can, for most missions of consequence, have other people contribute other Joes towards the accomplishment of the mission. And then they won't have as many cards in their hand later on in the turn, but you get efficiency over the game because during everyone's turn, everyone can pitch in and share resources. There is the ability to activate special powers, of course, up the wazoo, upgrade your leader, all manner of fun things. And I have to say that I I was surprisingly tickled by the vehicle element. That, I think, really sold the theme to me because G.I. Joe, let us us acknowledge it, is a 22-minute commercial for toys that aired in the 1980s. And I very much felt that in 
in the way the vehicles were represented. Every time you go on a mission, they have to go and get in a vehicle. Doesn't matter where they're going, doesn't matter what they're doing, it's got to go in a vehicle. Sometimes it makes sense, like you load a couple people up into a fighter jet and then they go go fight the Sky Palace. Sometimes it's really stupid, like you load the explosives expert onto a motorcycle with a sidecar and they go to the undersea base and engage in a martial arts battle with somebody. Okay, fine, whatever. You go, Joe, it's fine. Uh, but <laughs> it was really like, these are the various toys that you need to accessorize your G.I. Joes with. And it really felt like the cartoon slash marketing element in a way that touched me in a deep and surprising way. It was not genre-defying. It's very much a standard co-op deck building game, but it does allow for the things that we love in, in co-op deck building games, namely the ability to actively assist your partners on their turns. A little bit of cards ending up in different places only by virtue of the vehicles in a very, very subtle way. I really do like it when a deck builder were able to buy cards for your friends. Uh, you're not able to do that here, but that's okay. And I kind of enjoyed vaguely remembering, oh, I think I know who Shipwreck was. I think Shipwreck was the guy who got kidnapped and brainwashed in that multi-episode arc that gave me nightmares as a, as a child. So I think that it gets a lot of mileage out of nostalgia, which is to be expected because it's the G.I. Joe deck building game. I don't necessarily think I could recommend it to anyone who's utterly disinterested in the theme. But as far as licensed tie-in cash grabs go, I don't think this qualifies. I think this is a legitimate game by people who are enthusiastic about both deck building and the uh, original materials. And so I would play it again uh, happily with other players who were similarly enthusiastic. I think this is definitely not just a, uh, a microwave cut and paste job. I was pleasantly surprised by the G.I. Joe deck building game. Lastly for me is Uprising. This is by Nemesis Games. And there are a few games out out like this is like a pandemic style game where there's uh, like increasing dangers and you have to go do damage control. You're racing around and, and you have to, you know, use your actions properly to, to stop all of this, these fires, put out the fires that are happening all over the place. So one of my level seven invasion is a science fiction one that I love. Uh, I keep forgetting the name. There's another, uh, defenders of the realm, defenders of the realm. I have never played it. Maybe that's why I can't remember the name. But apparently it's much the same as a pandemic-type fantasy game, and this is what Uprising is. You're, there are two evil factions. There's chaos that's coming from the outside, and they just destroy everything, and they put up these curses that make the land unusable. And then there's the old-school hierarchy in the center that used to enslave the entire world and and dominate everywhere and you have to fight against them they're breaking out of there and you're trying to save people and and make land for yourself and you have all these different units that have special powers every every faction has different abilities you're buying items you're going on separate quests you're going out and killing these minions of these two powers and you're trying to to have more victory points than they do at the end of the game. The game is broken down into chapters and they made this great system where you can uh, sort of make the length of the game as much as you want and as difficult as you want. So there's cards for four different chapters, but you can only do three chapters if you want and you can sort of mix the cards how you want. So you can do like a one, two, two, or, you know, a two, two, three, you know, you, you make it how difficult you want it to be, or you can just do the standard one, two, three, four, or one, two, three, the world's your oyster mark. You can't tell me how to count. 
there's special land, there's mountains, like when you when you uncover hexes for territories, there's mountain ranges and you can sort of arrange them in a way that will steer these enemies in certain directions. That's interesting. It has this very much uh, scythe element where you're removing havens, like your little villages from your board, which is going to reveal more resources and give you more abilities on the board. Like everything about it, can't wait to play again. I've only played it once, so it won't be in the list today, but I'm telling you, if I had a chance to play it more, it definitely would be. And that is Uprising. I have two questions for you about Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor. One of them is, uh, so I assumed you pledged for the Kickstarter, right, Walker? Uh, yeah, well, that's how I got the game, Mark. It came to my door by post. It said, you know, it had my address on it. Yeah, And yeah. the box came. Yeah. So I, I saw him. I, I, Mark, I have so many Kickstarters. Like, how am I possibly supposed to remember if I pledged for it or not. I just, it must have. I my must name have. was on the box, Walker. It's mine. Listen, I don't know. I th- you know, when a box comes, Mark, I get so excited. I, I really don't usually look at the name. I'm I'm sorry. Walker has my game. Everyone needs to know about this. I'm sending out an international <laughs> APB. Walker has my game. Number two, I saw it build aggressively on the Kickstarter page as a co-op 4X. They kept saying that it was a 4X style game. They were very much pitching it as that kind of thing. Did you get those kinds of 4X vibes? Oh, for sure. Yes. You're you're building up your troops. You're going out, you're exploring hexes because there's going to be a number of enemies on it or resources that you want behind those hexes. You're expanding your havens because that's how you're getting uh, victory points at the end of the game or at the end of each round. And... So very much so. They have a great system of, you know, tracking the health points and how they move. And it, it doesn't rely on the pandemic sort of. So uh, level seven invasion is very much like a, 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 a pandemic game. The aliens build up in sectors. They explode out. There's only one tiny bit of exploding in Uprising where, you know, if there's ever three skeletons in an area, then it turns into something bigger. It doesn't happen that often, and it's not the main part of the game that it, like it is in these other uh, pandemic-like games. I think you're right to identify most co-op games uh, as being fundamentally pandemic-inspired in a lot of ways. You know, the sort of Matt Leacock's fundamental bones, no pun intended with the skeletons, of pulling a bad card and there might be some explosions by virtue of the concentrated badness in some areas has left such a looming shadow over most co-op designs. I don't think it's a problem. I enjoy lots of games of that ilk. But I am intrigued by the fact that you you keep emphasizing that Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor avoids that same pattern in a number of ways. So I'm very much intrigued and I'm very much looking forward to giving it a try. Yeah, and the, the component quality is ridiculous. Like the havens that I talk about that are your villages, you get to build little tiny walls around them and towers in the center. So they, you know, they evolve into these really cool looking villages. And the enemies, they have these garrisons that are like three tiered palaces that they, that's how you gauge how powerful they are. Acrylic pieces instead of miniatures. So that's like full color. Very interesting to watch. Very fun to play. Yeah, the acrylic standees are one of the other reasons why I pledged for this on Kickstarter. Full bleed art, oh, front wait, and back. Did you, you pledge for this? I'm sorry. Oh, is that your box? Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. Uh, 
I got to play a game called Monstrology. A Monstrology is a riff on Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong. What happens is it's a co-op game, and an individual player pulls a card. All the cards are well-drawn, child-style monsters, and they're imaginary friends. And so players are like, this is my imaginary friend. It's this weird monster that kind of sort of looks like a fish, but also kind of sort of is wearing a golden mask and kind of sort of has bony arms or whatever. I'm not doing the art justice. It's very good. But if I say Dixit style, I think everyone knows kind of what I mean. So, sort of interpretive, but here it's just a single monster, no background art or what, what have you. And then what they do is they pull a random placard, of which there are many, many, many. And the placard might have, what are your monster's three superpowers? And there's a list of about 20 to 30 superpowers, and you indicate three of them. Or it might be, rank your monster on a scale of one to five across these following five attributes. Like intelligence, hunger, whimsy, things of that nature. And there's a considerable variation, as I said, in terms of the placards of what you indicate. And then the player who pulled the monster puts that out, draws a certain number of random monster cards, sight unseen from the deck, shuffles them with their monster, shows all the monsters, and then all the other players try to guess which monster is the player's imaginary friend. And it was very visually delightful. I wouldn't put the art on the same level as, say, Dixit or Mysterium in terms of how evocative and how compelling the different artwork is. But to a certain extent, it needed to be a little bit clearer than, than those pieces, so I understand. And some of the placards were very intriguing. I very much liked them. One of the key difficulties in playing Deception Murder in Hong Kong is sometimes you pull a placard and it's useless. It just, it just doesn't apply to the crime at hand. You know, the, the victim's expression at the crime scene, you figure, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they were killed by a chainsaw, but I guess that just means they didn't die serenely. But how do you die serenely when you're murdered? Anyway, things, things of that nature sometimes pop up in Deception Murder in Hong Kong. Some people are able to make creative use of them and make truly inspired plays. But in Monstrology, the joy is navigating these di different placards, which uh, might put a little bit of a shelf life on the game. I don't know. I've only played it the once. And I have to say, though, that in terms of the play experience, it's undercut a little bit because the person giving the clues doesn't see what the other random monsters might be. And more than once in our play, someone thought came together with a set of clues that they thought were very good. And then based on the random pull from the deck, a monster came out that was yet a better match for the clues that the person had put out. So I think that maybe a house rule whereby you could see all the monsters all at once when you're giving your clues, that might make the game too easy, but you could modify it another way. It was charming. It is definitely the game that I would play with children. I would also play it with fans of Deception Murder in Hong Kong. I would absolutely show it to Walker because he's a, a big fan of that mechanism. Although it's pure co-op, there's no hidden traders, no, there's no roles. So you get that same level of cluing in without any sort of scoring system that might be clever for us gamers, but perhaps a little bit alienating for children or non-gamers. And so Monstrology, I think, manages to leverage that in a very approachable and engaging way. That is Monstrology by Andy Lubershane. It was self-published in 2017, but it was kickstarted for a more professional-looking version recently by Middle Brain Games. And finally for me, I got to play Conquest and Consequence. Conquest and Consequence is a review copy we got from GMT Games, designed by Craig Bazink. Walker can trot out his one joke about GMT Games now if he wants to. Walker has passed. He will not be trotting out the one joke about GMT Games right now. He will reserve that option for later on. 
I can say that Conquest and Consequence is sort of an evolution of the Triumph and Tragedy game system that Craig Bazink published a few years ago, which is a three-player game focusing on the Western theater of World War II. But it starts in 1936, and war might never break out. It might break out between different factions that you might expect, or it might break out right away. Similarly, Conquest and Consequence is a three-player asymmetrical game about the Pacific theater of World War II. And features a lot more naval combat, as you might imagine, and also involves, this is the the primary big difference between Conquest and Consequence and Triumph and Tragedy, a lot of rule subsystems about the Chinese Civil War, which is is ongoing. In 36, Mao had just finished his long march, and Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists were retrenching in the, the Kuomintang government. And this occupies a lot of the attention of both the American and the Soviet player in terms of their proxy fights. So the rules grit has increased a fair bit. Triumph and Tragedy was a pretty approachable game as far as historical war games go. But Conquest and Consequence has a number of additional situations where, like, wait a minute. So if I use my proxy power to do this thing against this other main national power and control changes who gets to do what in that new province kind of thing. But nonetheless, I have to say that Conquest and Consequence, completely unsurprisingly, because Craig Bazink is an absolute genius of block games. He designed Rob Mullen Desert, East Front, West Front, as well as Triumph and Tragedy, a whole bunch of other incredibly epic-making designs in the, in the field. Conquest and Consequence blew me away with its quality, its subtlety, its intelligence, as well as its scope. A lot of people say that Triumph and Tragedy doesn't get to call itself a historical war game because there are too many what-if scenarios. So many people when playing a Western Front Grand Strategic War game want France to fall in the exact same way in 1939 and 1940, the same way that it fell at... I very much appreciate the additional scope and additional options in games like this. Sometimes, sometimes I want to see things play out exactly the same way they did before, but I do appreciate the additional scope and options. Conquest and Consequence was an absolute joy. If you're at all interested in a sort of jump and complete complexity from your average Euro game, but not necessarily way off the deep end into a 12-hour style monster. I think the Triumph and Tragedy and Conquest and Consequence are absolutely candidates for your attention. And suffice to say, you'll be hearing me talk about Conquest and Consequence later on in this very same episode. So that was Conquest and Consequence by Craig Bazink at JMT Games. See, I didn't have to make the joke, Mark. You did it for me. So you said it was Conquest, right? You blew you away. It was a great game. And then the consequences is you have to put that ugly looking thing on your shelf. So, on to the top 10, or really pseudo-top 11, of 2021. It's true. We here at So Very Wrong About Games cannot count, and so we each have our own personal top 10s, and we collectively have a game of the year that we both agreed on. Walker and I have not heard each other's top 10s, but we do have an agreement on game of the year. And so with that in mind, Walker, what was your 10th best game of the year? Number 10, Mark, Korra, Rise of an Empire. Mark, you want tracks? I got tracks for you, man. I got (laughs) tracks on the board. I got tracks on your player board. I got tracks everywhere you need there to be tracks. I didn't ask for tracks, Walker. Well, too bad. You got tracks. Well, the the interesting things about Korra are the dice system. You're rolling dice. You have this array of actions, and you have to have dice equal to the actions that you want to play. If not, you are killing population in order to bump up those dice so you can use the actions that you want. You can get more dice later on in the game. You're trying to go up certain tracks. There's all sorts of different ways you can play. You can say, I'm really going to try to, you know, hit hard on this track or or these other tracks, and they do all pay off during the game. It's very interesting. You are definitely taking these tokens in the in the 
conflict phase. So you can play these political cards and you have to sort of decide which ones to get out early because the sooner you get them out, the sooner you're going to benefit from these cards. And I think all in all, it is a fun experience, easy to teach. Everyone that's played it, except for you, have has enjoyed it. I'll play Quora anytime. It's got a great die system where you want to roll high. And if you roll high, you get to do more things. And if you roll low, you don't. Yeah, marvelous. My number 10 is Micro Macro Crime City Full House. It is just as charming, just as engaging, just as narratively rich as the original Micro Macro Crime City. I'm having a blast going through all the cases. They are now... In the salient difference between the two games is a different map, and they're therefore allowing for more cases, and an age appropriateness rating for the different cases. If you've never played any Micro Macro, I assure you it is worth your five minutes. Go and find a copy of Micro Macro Crime City, and the Full House Edition is easily in my top ten of 2021. My number nine. Mark, you want death and carnage? Well, make a theme park and fill it with dinosaurs. You put a, a Ticeratops ring toss in, couple children get gored just more targets to throw your rings on baby (laughs) fantastic game you're building this park you're populating it with dinosaurs you're touring around dinosaur world by pandasaurus games now this game is only good if you play with all the expansions because as you're putting out the tiles it's very mundane. You just place them out and adding those expansions makes that tile placement 100% make a difference. Ice Age tiles, you have to have it in certain orientation. You want, you know, different carnivores and herbivores in different areas. The water expansion, you're dealing with this algae constantly. It's it's eating up your workers because you have to send them out to clean all these different areas up or the, you know, the guests don't quite like algae all over the place. And then you have the hybrid expansion, which, you know, is, you know, crazy dangerous. You know, they don't like it when you splice two different dinosaurs together. They get kind of upset. But the 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 the, the customers that come, they love seeing those freaks of nature. And that is Dinosaur World. My number nine is Cryo. Cryo is the very engaging worker placement game where you get to build your own engine. And as you're pulling your workers back, you get to run various lines of your engine. There's also a lot more player interaction than your average worker placement by virtue of both the events that can get triggered, which can be very nasty at times, as well as the area majority scoring, multi-use cards, which we always love. And just a slightly better take on the standard resource manipulation worker placement Euro. I was a huge fan of Cryo. Love to get it to the table. Very nice spin on the formula. That is number nine. My number eight is G.I. Joe, the deck building game. I don't think I need to say so much about this. Mark has already talked about it. Great nostalgia game. Interesting deck builder. Lots of fun. When people actually request it and you play it. That is the way it has to go, even when you want to play it yourself and everyone is enjoying it. They sort of look down at the table. They see the missions. There's a whole story happening there. They see the heroes that they used to see on the screen and the vehicles. Everyone jumps in and they, you know, ride off in the, in the, in the watership and they kick Cobra in the face. That's what you get to do in G.I. Joe, the deck building game. 
My number eight is Imperium, both in Classics and Imperium Legends, the deck builder by David Tsertse and Nigel Buckle. I released an editorial about this, about how its approach to thematic integration of the civilization genre, I think, is head and shoulders above the traditional Sid Meier mold. It is a wonderful solitaire game, also wonderful at two players. Not heavy on the player interaction, which is probably its biggest downfall, but you get to play as lots of different civilizations, and you get a marvelous sense of scope, sweep, and variety. Number eight, Imperium, Classics, or Legends, you cannot go wrong with either or both. My number seven is Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. Now, this was a solo game. I'm not, this is completely out of my wheelhouse. I'm usually not, I shouldn't say completely because I love World War II, uh, like, but usually like sort of an Axis and Allies, full plastic on large scale battles. But this was all about one particular battle that actually took place. It, it, it had tons of decisions, decision spaces of where to have your guys, how to have them armed, where they needed to be in certain times, what losses you're willing to take in the game. All of this stuff happened in this game. I was so surprised by how much I enjoyed. And just even after we reviewed it, wanted to go back and play this over and over again. I will be mentioning that later. Number seven for me was Comet Blood and Sand. I agonized a bit over to what extent we should allow reprints and redevelopments into the list. And then I said, you know what? 2021 was a hard year. If it's got any new content and Mark, you want to talk about it, put it on your list. And I said, you know what, Mark, you're right. I have had a hard year. I should be able to do what I want. And then Mark said, you're right, Mark. And Mark and Mark both agreed to themselves. Comet Blood and Sand is, I think, the best version of Comet thus far. It has some of the best elements of the expansions of the original game and is much, much better than that horrible 1.6 kludge that they introduced, which sucked a lot of the fun out of the game. Comet Blood and Sand is one of the best all-time weird troops on a map games where you're shopping for special powers and shoving divine abilities against each other. Big fan of Comet Blood and Sand. I'm not a fan of every change they made, but overall, as far as complete package goes, I think this is definitely the best iteration that the system has seen. And that is number seven, Comet Blood and Sand. My number six, The Crew, Mission Deep Sea. If you love The Crew in space, you are going to love Mission Deep Sea. I didn't mention this in the games we played this week because it's going to be on the list, and I will talk about it now. Mark, in the space version, you had all these different tokens and the logbook and you'd you'd pass out the tokens and you'd be like, okay, what does that one mean again? And and what do you do? Well, they fixed all of this in Deep Sea, Mark. They've made it is so great. Have you had a chance to play it yet? It is on my list of games that got away. I have not yet played Mission Deep Sea and I feel terrible about it. Oh my God, Mark. Wait till you see this deck. It's called the Mission Deck. And in the logbook, it is pretty well just a difficulty. You're going to start at level you know, two or three, and you're going to increase the difficulty. And in the, in the logbook, there's very little minor changes. Like you're going to lose a couple of communication tokens or it's the missions are going to actually be timed. Everything else is in this mission deck that's used for every mission in the logbook, or you can just open the box and say, Hey, let's do a level six mission. And on the backs of the cards, it's as the player count, how many players are you playing with? And it will put a number, it sort of rates the difficulty of what's on the other side of the card. And so if you're doing level five, you keep dealing out cards until you hit five. And if you go past five, then you just discard that and you keep going until you get to exactly five. Then you flip up all the mission cards and that is what you're going for. They'll say like, get the yellow three and the pink seven or all of the different things that you saw in the space one and a, and a lot more. 
and it just does it so quickly and it's all on the card. You don't have to look up what the token meant. There's no, oh, is this what they mean now or anything? It's all there. It makes it so much better. It just brings the crew, elevates it to a new level. I just can't wait to play it even more. Number six for me is Whale Riders, the Reiner Knizia game, where tempo is king, where you really have to worry about market manipulation in a very, very subtle, very simple way, but nonetheless really emphasizes the trade-offs you need to make about getting to where you need to go, about buying low and selling high, about competing against your other players and worrying about the end of the game. It does a whole bunch of things that a lot of other games that I've talked about even this week just don't do. So Magnate the First City was trying to play with tempo. Whale Riders does it so much better. Satisfying specific recipes in order to get points. Into Deep tried to play with that. Whale Riders does it so much better. And it is an incredibly simple game to teach. If you want to show somebody, even just in the past year, that Euro games have not run out of steam, that you can still have an incredibly slim rule set and tense decisions, Whale Riders is absolutely something that I would recommend. Whale Riders by Reiner Knizia is mine number six. All right, we are halfway through the list. Great time to say that... We generated these lists using a website called Pub Meeple, where you input all of the games. We inputted 20, and it faces them off against each other, and then it gives you, it ranks them for you. So you don't actually get to put all of the games in, you know, the, the sort of ranks that you want. It sort of pits games against each other, and it'll populate for you. So sometimes things can be in odd uh, order that maybe you th- you go back. Speak for yourself. I own my list entirely. Walker. I know I own it. I'm just saying when you when you sort of look at it, some of these things seemed odd to me. But anyway, moving on. My number five, Reiner Knizia might be a couple times on the list. Who knows? Siege of Rundar. What a fantastic co-op game. This huge castle that you put in the like. 3D castle you put in the middle of the table. You're going to have catapults. You're going to have siege engines. You're going to try to be defending against orcs and trolls, trying to dig your way out, uh, uncovering goblins that you have to quickly deal with so you can keep trying to, you know, get your getaway tunnel, uh, crafting buildings, doing build deck building. It's all there. Reiner Knizia knows how to make games fun. That is the Siege of Rundar, my number five. My number five is For Science by my personal friend Eric Royce. For Science manages to reinvent stacking, which continues to blow me away every time I play it. Marvelous blend of different things to do cooperative. It is a cooperative real-time dexterity game, which again makes it very, very niche, but that is absolutely the niche that I am in. Delightful, humorous, satirical, as well as brain-bending in the best possible way while still requiring a steady hand. And honestly, if any of those attributes are things you can't do, there's still a role for you in For Science. I can't do the tiling, puzzle-solving game most of the time. I just delegate that to other people, just like real scientists do. So it's a really, it's a simulationist game. For Science is an utter delight. I highly recommend it. For Science is my number five. My number four, Coffee Traders. Another capstone game. In Coffee Traders, you're making these plantations. You are buying coffee. You are selling coffee. You are making buildings. You're improving the lives of these farmers. And it has a... I keep saying a disconnect, but disconnect usually means it's a bad thing. But what I'm talking about is even if you don't have a presence in a plantation, you can still buy coffee there. So it doesn't matter how much you've built it up or how great you've made the plantation. Everyone gets a chance to buy coffee there. So it's these two separate phases of building up different plantations and then buying coffee and then selling coffee and lots going on. Maybe 
sometimes too many things going on. But all in all, it's a very interesting puzzle of when to do certain things, how to spend your resources, because you have a limited number of workers, either you're going to send them to sell or you're going to send them to build buildings, decision spaces all throughout every phase of the game. I will play Coffee Traders at any time. It is a beast to teach because there's so much going on and because some of these different tracks are a little fiddly. But other than that, I had great times playing Coffee Traders. My number four, it is time for Bardownski's Only and to show those Charlotte Gaines bro. It is time for Tarps Off, buddy. It's all about the snow and the flow. It is Trickshot. Trickshot is a game about sports ball, but despite that, it is probably the best push-your-luck game that I've played in many, many years on top of a semi-abstract spatial puzzle about how to get that puck thingy, which is, I think, what the sports ball experts call into the goalie thingy, which I think is also the technical term. It has marvelous little hockey player figurines that don't even look at all like the ones on on Letterkenny, but I'll forgive it for that. Room for expansion. Note, Archem Nichiporov, call me. And I absolutely adore all the variation that's put on top of what is fundamentally a very, very simple dice game system that consistently breaks my brain every time I sit down to play it. A marvelous two-player game, despite the fact that the theme does nothing for me, despite my Canadian roots. I absolutely love Trickshot and cannot wait to play it again. That is my number four. My number three, Reiner Knizia, Witchstone. Another combos on combos game you are placing a tile in your cauldron it is it is creating chains of different actions you use all of these actions on all sorts of different things on the board whirling around the pentagram track rocketing up the wand track making potions area you know root root making on the big cauldron or area control whatever you want to call it building buildings doing stuff easy to teach lots of like moving the crystals around, like not only placing the tiles in your cauldron, but there's these crystals that are blocking, figuring out the easiest way to move them out of the way and or right off your cauldron. Lots of things to do. Witchstone. Could we have a sidebar, Walker? I would just like to mention, it's, at, it's, it's really quite surprising how few crossovers we've had so far on our list. Well, Mark, I sent you the list of games that we played this year. Like it's if you true. compared that, to the to the last year, I bet you would, it, it, <laughs> last year would be one third, if not less, that is an than the games point. we played this year. And it's worth emphasizing. I probably should have said this before. Twenty twenty one was an amazing year for games. You said before you had gotten your list to top twenty. I couldn't get it down to lower than twenty five. I could not like I, I I couldn't pare down that last five from the list. And I I can tell you right now that last two will not cross over. What all you haven't even all played right. these last two games. Okay, well then. My number three is therefore probably going to be the only crossover, and that is going to be a solitaire historical war game, and that is Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms by David Thompson. This is the third game in the Valiant Defense theory, uh, series. The fourth game, Lanzarath Ridge, is going to be up on crowdfunding by the time you hear this. Is it a game about the Battle of the Bulge? Yes. Do I not care about the Battle of the Bulge? Yes. Do I think that a series of rhetorical questions are a poor way to advance an argument? Also, yes. Will I nonetheless back everything that David Thompson does? 100%. Soldiers and Postman's uniforms, I think, it, it manages to balance the narrative of Castle Itter, the second game in the series, with some of the more uh, crunchy decision-making of Pavlov's House, the first game in the series, is, is thereby the sort of synthesis of some of the best elements of historical wargaming, specifically that narrative historical evocation with quality decision-making and surprising results. It is a marvelous game, and 
and a splendid intro to, to historical solitaire wargaming if you haven't given it a try before. That is number three, Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. Apparently there's an app for Pavlov's House. Pavlov's House. I'm going to have to go check it out because if there's an app that runs all this stuff for you, then I can't wait to give it a try. I've played the Steam version of Pavlov's House. I've talked about the Steam version of Pavlov's House. It's very well done. Sweet. All right, my number two. Now, there is going to be big battles for the table space for the next... There's either going to be Uprising or this next game is Steam Watchers. Because I am a sucker for troops on a map game. And we have played this several times in the last couple of weeks. As soon as I got it in, finally. And there is sort of a, a Euro element to this fighting game. Because you are going to start... Steam Watchers, pretty well the strongest you're going to be for the whole game. And you are racing around to these plummets of steam that are coming out of the earth, but you don't want to pile your guys in there because these these big steam funnels create a sickness. So you sort of want to wait till they die down and then you build farms there which sustain your people. And every time you're in this steam, you're getting up this incubation track and once you get to a certain point of this incubation track, you're starting to block off things on your player board. Like, now I can't do as many special actions. Now I'm not going to have too much of this special power that we use throughout the whole turn. Or now I don't have get to have as many troops on the board because you're blocking off all these different things. And then when you get to the very highest point, you have to start losing troops. And that's going to lose you points at the end of the game. So you're attacking the other players and it's very much... you you know, throw out any turtling or building up your economy. It's all about attacking. You are trying to take these farms away from people. You are trying to get to these steam vents before they can. There are uh, special cards. There are, uh, you're picking, uh, sort of, you know, occupations at the beginning that give you special abilities, all sorts of things happening. I can't wait for, to get you to try this mark steam watchers by mythic games. Like I said, I'm a sucker for troops on a map. My number two is Tribune, the reprint by Spielworks. It gets on the list by virtue of new content. The new content is not my favorite part of the game, but Tribune is my favorite worker placement game, and even the lesser version of Tribune is still a brilliant game worth trying. So if you have any enthusiasm for worker placement, but nonetheless lament the fact that it is often just a lazy way to distribute resources and or encourages generic games that don't have a whole lot of player interaction, Tribune is the answer to all of your woes. Even Bad Tribune is some good Tribune. My number two is Tribune. Um, side note, that is reprint number two for Mark's list. Has new content. My number one, Botoku by Devier Games. Now, if you were to make a game that everything that I loved, this would be it. Super crunchy, worker dice worker placement that you can upgrade the dice or, or the more you use them, they downgrade worker uh, placement areas that matter. And not only do they fill up quickly, but if there is a die already there that's higher than what you have available, then you're going to lose out on a lot of that action. You have to place a die that's either equal to or higher. And then there's other worker placement games where people can pull their workers back at different times. So it's going to free up spaces for you. This has this in a little bit where those worker spaces, they can cross the river. So you can try to hold out and go to other places and hopefully they're going to move out. So then you can get your lower dice in there. So there's a lot of waiting. 
The art is incredible. They have two different sets of cards that you're going to use. One is for a path on your own player board. The other are your action cards that you're playing. And they use like a completely different art style for both. Both are amazing. Even the player pieces, the board. I really like everything about Potoku. I can't wait to play it more. People keep trying to get me excited about Potoku. I just can't. It's just I'm not getting there. I'll try it. I'll absolutely try it. People keep wanting to make me think that I'm missing out. I'm not feeling it yet. My number one, I spoiled this earlier on in the show, is Conquest and Consequence. An absolute brilliant reimagining of an already brilliant design. I am a massive fan of the works of Craig Bazink, and I love grand strategic what-if scenarios for historical conflicts. And Conquest and Consequence absolutely satisfies a marvelous marvelous experience it's not gonna it's not gonna be a simple pick up and play game but it nonetheless will not take the entire day either a solid four hours that people know what they were doing and i cannot wait to get conquest and consequence as well as triumph and tragedy back on the table again a triumph of a design from a past master designer my highest possible recommendation my favorite game of the year personally on my top 10 is conquest and consequence so walker what is our game of the year? Man, we have to get some sort of fanfare recording or, you know, like trumpets and things going. Dun, 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 dun. Do, 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 do. That's all I got. Oh, right. Onk. Onk, Gods of Egypt by Eric Lang. So why is this game number one? I'll tell you some reasons why. This is obviously the advancement of this whole set sort of Vikings to, uh, to uh, chaos, to blood rage to rising sun and now he's stripped everything away and just made this really interesting game where like in rising sun it's like oh there's no you look at your tiles and it's like i don't get to do the actions i want you have all the actions you want here but there's detriments and advantages to what actions you want there's in all the games there's like all these great monsters but you never get them in your hand at the at, in this game all of the monsters are on the board at the beginning you know what they are you know what they can do you know what you need to do to get them are you willing to make the sacrifice to do that there are no foolish hidden cards there's tons of cards but everyone has the same deck same thing with your player boards crazy powers but everyone's are the same you know what's there you know what to go for you know what they have i think this is everything from all of those games the best parts I agree with you entirely. Ankh Gods of Egypt is, I think, unquestionably Eric Lang's greatest game design to date. He has managed to square so many circles. You get the Euro appeal of subtle tempo trade-offs, of action management, of efficiency, of subtle careful placement, and at the same time allowing this, the kind of wild special powers and incredible combos, those come-from-behind moments of drama and excitement and uncertainty that you're going to find in some of your more random games, even some of Eric Lang's previous games. I it's a, it's a wonder. I don't know how a game can simultaneously feel like a Reiner Knizia efficiency puzzle while at the same time having all of the madness and chaos of a special powers laden troops on a map game. It's a marvel of a design and I thoroughly enjoy it every time I play. I see something new every time I play and I always want to try out more new stuff and go back to the same existing stuff, which is that, that specific combination, that infectious design element that really indicates that it's something worth playing and enjoying and remembering. That is our game of the year, Ankh, Gods of Egypt by Eric Lang, published by Simon, the best of 2021. 
according to us at So Very Wrong About Games. So true. Now on to our special categories. We start off with the with the most uplifting one, worst <laughs> yeah. games we played this year. I kept mine to worst of the 2021 games we played this year. Yes. I don't know if you have any older games. I'm with. No, I'm no, no. This is just with... from 2021. It, and you're right. We have to do this as just a little palate cleanser, having praised all these brilliant designs. And again, I'd just like to stress, the 15 games that I had that didn't make this top 10 list, also amazing games that I highly recommend, all games that I've talked about in the podcast. It's been a stellar year for games, but there have also been some stinkers. This was this is true. Like I had one in here, and you said we're doing three for each, so I did have to think about the other two to add in. I didn't have to lift for the three here. These are three that I definitely don't like. But anyway, what are your three, Walker? So the first one is the one is one that you and I both played. It's called Umbra Via. This is some sort of weird abstract. Put pedals into tunnels. Win area majority. <laughs> it just tried to do stuff, and there's so many games that just do it better. And much more interesting. I talk about this later, but go on. I have the Dragon Prince Battle Charge. So I was interested in this game because I really like the IP. I was hoping that it would be some sort of interesting, you know, fighting game. But it just, you know, it was sort of, here is our fighting game system. Change the names. Punch it back out again. (laughs) It was very generic. Didn't really feel much like, you know, the actual characters. So I was a little... uh, not happy with that, and by far the worst one. Painful to play. Seven Wonders Architect. How it is even called a game, I don't <laughs> know. So one of my worst of the year was a game that we played together as well. It's called The Initiative, and I found the gameplay tedious. What was supposed to keep it together was a series of puzzles and narrative, which completely failed to grab me. I found it very mechanical and unsatisfying. I did not enjoy the initiative at all. And then a pair of games that are very, very similar. Component-heavy, incredibly dull, procedural worker placement games where you get the resources and you blow the resources trying to defend or fight against somebody. They're very similar games, specifically After the Empire, which at least had the redeeming feature of lovely little plastic bits of the walls that you get to build up. But I found the game painful and overlong. And Galaxy Hunters... Also, a painfully tedious game of get the resources, hurl them at that fight, wash, rinse, repeat. Not a whole lot of player interaction in either game. Overlong, unsatisfying. After the Empire and Galaxy Hunters, both, I think, examples of how not to do worker placement. More on both of those later. (laughs) So, next category are the best expansions of the year. What were your favorite expansions of 2021, Walker? Best expansions. I have, like I already said before, the uh, Dinosaur World, the Hybrid, the Ice Mm. Age, and the Water expansions are a must. I also have Aquatica Cold Water that we played. Fantastic uh, expansion. And then we have the best one by far is Nadavalier Thingvalier. This adds in mercenaries. This adds in more cards. This just adds in... uh, fun make you know re-energizes a game that was already very fun to play another crossover i also have aquatica cold water i think it's a splendid expansion to a splendid game really gives it a a little bit extra bit of breadth i also have concordia solitaria which is the solitaire expansion to concordia it's a marvelous ai very impressive it's not as 
compelling as the base game against other players, but it does a very, very good job of giving you an easy-to-execute opponent to play against. And somewhat relatedly, my favorite expansion of the year is Undaunted Reinforcements, the expansion to both Undaunted Normandy and Undaunted North Africa. I, I thought about keeping it from this list by virtue of the printing errors, but honestly, speaking from my own experience, the printing errors, although obnoxious, do not stand in the way of my enjoying the final product as much as I do. More scenarios, more units, and at the same time, a somewhat overburdened and overcomplicated David Certe solo design, but I nonetheless enjoy the solo elements when I have tried them. So that is definitely my favorite expansion of the year, with also nods to Aquatica Cold Water and Concordia Solitaria. On the topic of solo games... Yes, on the topic of solo games, next up is Best COVID or Solo Game. Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. By far, best solo game. Also here I have our two two-player games that I found that were really good. Radlands and Jekyll versus Hyde. Radlands is, you know, the typical, I have these bases, you need to blow them up, I need to blow up your bases, put cards out in front, but they just, they made it very streamlined, very interesting. Jekyll and Hyde, uh, a trick-taking game where one person is supposed to, is trying to even out the number of tricks that each player wins, and the other is trying to swing it one way or the other. Very interesting way that trumps are decided. Great game. Check it out. Jekyll versus Hyde. I, too, have soldiers in postman's uniforms. Marvelous solo game. And as I say, a great introduction into solo wargaming if you haven't tried it before. I also have Imperium Legends and Classics. Great solo or two-player game. Marvelous contribution in that area. As well as Vienna Connection. We talked about Vienna Connection earlier, and I was thinking, what is a good game to play while you're isolated either by yourself or with a a small number of other family members? It's a very approachable narrative-style game, and a lot of people like puzzles of that nature. Not necessarily directly up my alley, but I did enjoy it a great deal while playing it. Vienna Connection, a good story to share with someone else or to consume by yourself. Next up is Best Game, But You Didn't Like It. I love these categories. Best game you didn't like and worst game you did like are definitely my favorite categories every year. All right, Mark, we both played the Imperium games, the Contention and Legends. Wasn't my bag of tea. Well, I think, I think, can I look in both of these? I think all three of these, same thing. Deck milling. Anything that is deck milling, <laughs> hate it. Uh, Oath, Chronicles of Empire and Exile, same thing. Going to territories, milling the decks for cards that you need. Pax Viking. Milling the, well, the one side of the deck for the different, you know, uh, actions that you're going to get or territories or heroes or all the different things. Pax Viking, I can see how, how good it is. I like, there are so many things I like about it, but would never choose to play it. I too have Oath Chronicles of Exile here. People keep trying to tell me how brilliant a narrative and, and how full of, of storytelling and universe Oath is. I don't see it. I've tried. I'll, I'll probably try another couple, couple times. But for me, Cole Worley is very much hit or miss. He's always interesting, but sometimes I don't like the games. And Oath is definitely in one of the miss category for me. I also have Umbrawea. Umbrawea is a very, very tight, interesting design, I think. It just doesn't do it for me. It's a little too tight, a little bit too abstract and with weird ripple effects that I feel like I should be able to anticipate if I were smarter. Very much in the Pear Sylvester style of game design, where in order to win, you have to sacrifice your position. And that is a very clever game element. It's just not one that speaks to me personally. And finally, on game good games that I didn't like, That Time You Killed Me. A positional abstract that almost convinces me that it's not a positional abstract, but it's still just a positional abstract. Very well designed, definitely will find its audience, but not for me. 
Next category is worst game you, but you, you did like it. Bad mechanics, terrible mechanisms, but oh my God, was it fun. And these are the two games that you've already talked about. After the Empire and Galaxy Hunters. Loved <laughs> both these games. <laughs> Building your bases, like defense, you know, figure out which way they're coming in. Make sure you have the right troops on, on the walls. You know, build back up. Turn it from wooden fences into stone. Get the towers. Put out the fires. Interesting game. That's after the Empire. Galaxy Hunters. Ah, so painful. The board, <laughs> you know, you know, blocking. Like there's work. There is worker placement blocking, but it was just so arbitrary and awful. But to the fact that you got to, you know buy all these different guns and, and create these combos. And there was like power packs that worked well with certain guns and you're going out killing all these different mutants and you needed different combinations of mutants and rolling dice, galaxy, galaxy hunters, painful, but still had fun playing. And lastly, <laughs> dice miner. Uh, it gets boring awfully quickly, but you can just see the interesting, like rolling all these big chunky dice and trading off the beer so you can let someone, you know, so you pick two dice, but they get to roll and they get extra dice and make it, it's like almost like a roll and write type style, all these different combos of the dice. Lots of interesting things there. Asymmetric powers. It was, it was very interesting and I would play it anytime. Dice Miner. For me, I've got Groundhog Day the game. It is just a subtle variation on the mind, and it's not super thematic, but I'm such a sucker for the movie, and I do enjoy playing it. It's a silly little cooperative activity. Groundhog Day, the game, is very much one of Prospero Hall's lazier design elements, but trying to make up for theme and charm. And for me, the charm overwhelms me. And I do enjoy Groundhog Day, the game, even though I don't think there's much there there. Gargoyles, The Awakening, I talked about this. This is a bone standard cookie cutter co-op move around, roll dice fight monsters kind of things. But it's gargoyles, so I'm very happy with it. What can I say? I have no excuses. And finally, this might be a little bit controversial. Llama Dice. Llama Dice is not even the top five push your luck game in the top five push your luck games by Reiner Knizia, I think, and probably not even of the p top five Reiner Knizia games of the past year. But I'm still willing to play it because it's so quick and enjoyable, and watching people suffer is always enjoyable. Now, did I contribute to making them suffer by virtue of any of my choices? Nah, not really. But still, there are llamas, there are dice. I'll happy to I'll be happy to chuck them around. So now on to the next one, which is the biggest disappointment. Which which games you thought were going to be fantastic, but fell flat? Sleeping Gods, Mark. So many people talking about Sleeping Gods, the grindiness, the the, the grind game, and use up your 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 health go back and fill it back up again so you can grind it back out again and fill it back up again back and forth sleeping gods awaken garbage <laughs> second is a game that you and i both played is it sashin shasin sashin now <laughs> when we read about this we thought we both thought it was great moral deep moral questions Getting down to what, you know, what is, is morally correct or different ways you could like old Ultima style building your character. What Political dilemmas as well. Political, yeah. yes. But unfortunately what it broke down to was, oh, if I answer this way, I'll get pink. And I, if I answer this way, I'll get red. Well, I really want the red. So I'll answer this way. And so it quickly just turned down to gaming it out and fell flat quickly. And then Denia. 
the art was fantastic. This was a review copy. It had this spearum where you're putting workers in between cards. So that sort of thing, you're sort of building up these different buildings and putting your robots uh, in between them so you can uh, draft these dice and, and trigger these actions. And then you're getting these artifacts and it, it, it just didn't flow right. There was something about it, something about, you know, the arbitrary rules about which dice you could draft and, and, and some of the artifact powers being overpowered. It just didn't work the way I wanted to. And that was Denia. I agree with you about Shasin. It's also on my list. I was very much looking forward to Shasin. I had a great enthusiasm for the premise as well as just the physical production and graphic design and audacity of the design but i agree with you it just became gamey and mechanical very quickly and it didn't do a good job of embellishing that into deep which i talked about today also makes my list i was very much looking forward to into deep and i was very very disappointed by it and finally i think this is going to be another controversial entry siege of rundar I kind of enjoy Siege of Rundar. I'm not saying it's a bad game or I don't enjoy it, but I had very high hopes because Reiner Knizia has done very excellent co-op games. He arguably reinvented the modern genre with his Lords of the Ring game. He's very good at deck building as well. His Eldorado deck builders are amazing, and so I thought I, I can't wait to see his co-op game with deck building elements. And at the end of the day, it's just the caprice of the dice. He's such a good game designer with with dice and dice mitigation and dice manipulation but at the end of the day in siege of rundar far too often you're just forced to go and roll your four dice and then the dice say you suck and are stupid go home you're an idiot and then i start crying and then i start remembering my father and it's a whole thing (sighs) i need a kleenex now that was very sad onward to happier news Biggest biggest pleasant surprise, the antonym of biggest disappointments. What shocked you pleasantly, Walker? Mark, Adventures of Robin Hood. This was a Spiel de Jar winner. And man, I thought it was going to be just a silly child's game. And boy, was I wrong. Not that it's deep or crunchy, but it's just this very interesting story. Make your little path, keep in the shadows, uh, sort of uh, micro-macro style where if you analyze the map, you can see little things. It's like, oh, they're going to want me to go there and in order to do something else. And the game is designed that you go to do the something else and it'll tell you to go back and get that other thing. But if you go to the other thing first, it'll ask you the second part. It's like, oh, did you already do that other thing? Well, then you can just continue. So if you... If you do plan it out, it actually rewards you for that. Loved it. Can't wait to play more. Played three or four games. Definitely want to get back to it. Adventures of Robin Hood. Just a minor note, Walker. Just because you enjoyed it doesn't mean it's not a game for silly children. So true. What were your other pleasant surprises? Oh, sorry. Llama Land. I think you agree with me. Didn't think this was going to be much of anything. It was looked as though it was like a, a Zulu, not Zuluretto, but a... Uh, Baron Park sort of spin-off thing, but this was definitely its own thing. Lots of different ways you can build your territories out, place your llamas, doing the objectives. It was much better than I thought it was going to be. And my third returning to the list crossover, but not in this particular area, Groundhog Day. Just said, oh, look, an IP with weird art, This is going to be awful, but it was actually really fun, and I would also play it anytime. I would only disagree with you about Llama Land in that I did have expectations for Llama Land, and I thought it was going to be good and solid, and it was both good and solid. So that's the only reason why it's not on on my list. My biggest pleasant surprises are, number one, Furnace. 
I was not expecting Furnace to please me so much with its its novel auction elements. You know, there, there's dozens and dozens of drab-looking Euro game efficiency engine builders every year. You never know which one's going to rise to the top, and Furnace I was not expecting to be as pleasantly surprised as I was. Imperium the Contention looks like a stupid sci-fi game. It even describes like a stupid sci-fi game, but is really, really well done. And its ambition in terms of presenting solo, deck construction, multiplayer, involving both military conquest and a pseudo point system. It avoids a lot, if not most, of the multiplayer conflict issues and has lots of pleasant card effects and lots of satisfying confrontational fighting Huge surprise, Imperium the Contention. Narrowly missed out on my top 10 of this year. Big fan. I was very pleasantly surprised. And Cryo. Similarly, when it comes to worker placement games, worker placement engine building games, I never know which one's going to completely sideline me. Cryo was a massive out-of-left-field surprise hit for me. Big fan with very low expectations. That was Cryo. I love this category. I feel so positive now. Now, Mark, for the ones that got away. So these are games that... How much time do you got? I know. Are these but ones that got away, this ones that you just didn't bother wanting to play or ones that just couldn't get your hands on? I have just ones that I just couldn't get my – two that aren't even out yet. They're, they remain as 2021 releases. This is Boone Lake by, once again, Capstone Games and Arc Nova. I did play Arc Nova once on Tabletop Simulator, but not enough to get a good grasp of it. And Boone Lake looks very interesting. Can't wait to give it a try. And then Cascadia. Well, lots of people are playing Cascadia. You're not one of them. I'm not one of them. It just does <laughs> not appeal to me. But are people say, are, is there buzz because of certain people playing it and saying it's good? Or is there actually something there? Time will tell. I'm sure I'll get a chance to play it in this coming year. It's fine, but you don't need to bother. The ones that got away from me. Hour of Need. Hour of Need is technically released last year, but Blacklist Games are playing fast and loose with whether or not they have enough money to play Quartermaster Shipping. Uh, Quartermaster Logistics, rather. So we'll see whether that ever happens. Some people have played it. I haven't. Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor. I wonder what ever happened to my copy that, that shipped in 2021. Uh, maybe I'll be able to track it down. I haven't heard about it. Right? I'll look it up. I don't, I don't know what, what it's all about. Maybe is it, is it supposed to be good? Well, some people like it, but I don't trust them. Red Flag Over Paris is a two-player game about the Parisian Commune of 1870 by GMT Games. Would very much like to try that. And then there's just a host of middle to heavyweight Euro games that I didn't get a chance to play. I'm thinking of Imperial Steam. I'm thinking of Ark Nova. I'm thinking of Botoku. No doubt I'll be able to play those in the, the coming weeks. But as I said before, with respect to a lot of similar-seeming Euros, I'm I'm... It's tough to tell sometimes which ones are going to sideline you with and impress you with their quality, or if they're just going to end up in the same sort of swill of generic Vital Lacerda kind of engine point conversion things. So those are the ones that got away. Imperial Steam is just so crunch-tacular that I didn't include it anywhere in my list. I only played it twice, and there's just so much there that I didn't think it was fair to put it on there yet. Eminently reasonable. So, Walker, what are you looking forward to in 2022? What are your most anticipated games of this coming year? Well, I think you can just go back to last year's list, Mark. Same same, same ones. <laughs> Literally. Uh, we have Wonderland's War. I'm sure it says it's on the boat. Maybe we'll get it this year. Who knows? Uh, Frostpunk, although it was Frostpunk uh, probably on my list last year. It's also will most definitely be out this year as well. On a side note, 
I thought it was fantastic. You know, there's, they're, they're saying, okay, here, this is what the box is going to look like, Mark. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, uh, cardboard inserts. We're going to have to punch outs that we have to put in. So, you know, the lid's not going to quite fit on. And the same was, the same was for your uprising box. You know, it was about an inch off the, off the bottom, but the frost punk one, like, is that lid even on the box? <laughs> it's like it's got at least a full six inches where it's just going to be wrapped and, you know, you're going to open it up and you're going to have this giant stack of punch-outs. Very funny. And last but not least, most anticipated hidden leaders. So, Mark, this is a th- I guess you can think you can play more or less than three players, but it's essentially a three-player game where where you don't know who's playing what faction. Some people are trying to push up the the track and some people are trying to keep the two sides equal and some are trying to go back the track. Can't wait to give this a try. Hidden Leaders. My most anticipated of 2022, number one is Guards of Atlantis 2. I've been looking forward to Guards of Atlantis 2 for quite some time. We've played early production versions a couple of times online. There's a constantly updated Tabletopia version, but it's not really a game until I can grab the cards with my sweaty little hands. And here's hoping that Guards of Atlantis 2 will be released in this coming year. Fabulous. My preferred of the MOBA-style board games, and I love me some MOBA-style board games. Next up is Horizon Wars Midnight Dark, which is supposed to be a redevelopment of Horizon Wars, the original war game published by Roby Jenkins and Osprey Games, a combined arms science fiction 6 to 15 millimeter tabletop miniatures game that I absolutely love, but this is going to be involving some of the reaction and bonus action mechanisms introduced by Infinite Dark, which is an absolutely brilliant solo and co-op tabletop miniatures game and so i'm looking forward to one of my favorite games of roby jenkins being really modernized with some of the new excellent design work that he's been doing and finally john company second edition by cole worley as i've said before cole worley is always a fascinating designer some of his games i love some of his games i really find interesting i very much enjoyed the first john company but felt it was overly fragile and narrow and so i'm hoping that the john company second gives you a little bit more room to breathe and pull on all of those fascinating levers while being a satire of british colonialism all right next up and last except for the very last is games you want to be so so good but you know they're going to be a nightmare train wreck time (laughs) huge kickstarter lots of production colorful pictures everyone's involved everyone can't wait stretch goals everywhere but it's going to be a nightmare why are you assuming that these are going to be kickstarters walker why do they have to be kickstarters <laughs> uh, just because they usually are are all mine kickstarters? Yeah. all mine are kickstarters uh, i think this might have been on my list last year titan is also on the boat we will get it it's this you're on a planet it's got this giant open pit mine so it's like this huge plastic disc that you have on your on your table and it goes down into different levels and you're clicking in your little path as you're digging down. You have little drones that are going around. You have factories, you have stuff going on. Want so much to be good. It will be so terrible. Artisans of Splendid Vale. Why did I kickstart yet another dungeon crawly type game, Mark? (laughs) Who knows? I'm sure it will be awful. And then the Darkest Dungeon. Mark, you love Darkest Dungeon. Dewey loves Darkest Dungeon. I want this game to be good. I have no invested interest in Darkest Dungeon. I just want everyone to enjoy it. I want it to be a dungeon crawler that is actually good for a change. Can it please be good? Please, make it good. Thank you. 
I also have Darkest Dungeon on this list. It's going to be awful. It's going to be so bad, Walker. <laughs> I, no. I get, look, I will stick up for Splendid Vale. Nikki Valens is a great designer. There is reason to, to, to believe that Nikki Valens will do an excellent job. So how dare you, sir? But yeah, um, Darkest Dungeon, it's going to be bad. Uh, I see your Darkest Dungeon and I raise you a Massive Darkness 2 hellscape. I had some stupid fun with Massive Darkness, and I have irrational hopes that Massive Darkness 2 is going to be equally stupid fun, but also solid mechanically. It's not going to be, Walker. There's no reason to believe it will be, and yet I rationally hope it will. So I'm prepared, I'm pre-disappointed for Massive Darkness 2 Hellscape. Finally, ISS Vanguard. Finally, For one thing, ISS Vanguard is probably not going to be released next year, but they say they will, but pff, who knows. And also, it's like another narrative play through a whole bunch of linked campaign thingies. I got it on the basis of the cool-looking mechanized suits. Am I going to be able to play around with those suits? Nah. I'm just going to be allocating dice for some sort of weird overarching plot that I don't care about. And keep in mind, this is already with a company with an uneven track record at best. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) Super finally. Super, super final finally. Walker, what was the best movie of the year? Dune. Flea. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on SoWrongGames.com and all our contact information is at SoWrongGames.com slash contact. We are on all the social meds. You can find us there. You can also check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. We thank you for all of your support and your attention in 2021. We look forward to having you for the rest of 2022, and we hope to see you again soon. Thank you very, very much. Great to be back. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bickney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 